This morning, I've titled this, pe- this message, <clears throat> God's Authority Over Kingdoms. God's Authority Over Kingdoms, and I'm using kingdom in the broadest sense of the term possible. So if you're taking notes, write that down. God's Authority Over Kingdoms. We're going to share communion here in a few moments. So we're starting now, preparing our hearts, getting ready. It's exciting. Amos chapter 7 records three visions that God has showed Amos. Up to this point, the book of Amos contains, uh, Amos is writing down what God is speaking to him. We come to Amos chapter 7 and Amos is writing down what God is showing him. He is seeing what God is planning and doing in his vision. These three pictures that we're going to look at this morning are brief, but they're effective in communicating what God is up to. So as we Pardon me. As we go through these, engage your brains, engage your imaginations, uh, because it's a it's going to be a picture, several pictures, three visions, and then the last part is the narrative. Very important. So number one, here we go. God's authority over kingdoms. Number one, the Lord prepared locusts. Oh, just strikes you right in your heart, doesn't it? Uh, these, these texts from Amos are difficult to come up with any sort of exciting uh, titles. What I figure what is best is that I'll give titles that move the story along. So if you remember anything that I've preached about, you'll remember the points that I made that move the story along, and you'll get the big point, okay? So the Lord was preparing locusts in this story, uh, in the first vision that we're going to look at. So Amos chapter 7, verse 1. The Sovereign Lord. Everyone say, Sovereign Lord. Ah, yep, that's good. It's good already. Three words into it. Hallelujah. Pastor in West Texas where I grew up, he said hallelujah all the time. Boy, that was distracting. All right. The Sovereign Lord showed me a vision, Amos says. I saw him, who? Him, which is... Sovereign Lord. Sometimes we get lost in the pronouns of who the pronoun's talking about. It's very important that we don't lose it in this. The Sovereign Lord showed me a vision. I saw him preparing to send, get your, your imagination going, a vast swarm of locusts over the land. This was after the king's share had been harvested from the fields and as the main crop was coming up. A couple of things going on here that I want to point out. First, the emphasis is on the fact that the sovereign Lord is the one at work here. I'm giving you time to think about it. The sovereign Lord is the one preparing this vast swarm of locusts. Good job. Y'all are with me. This is not a natural disaster brewing. This is not a springtime coincidence. This is the Lord God, the sovereign Lord, who in a previous chapter shaped the mountains, stirs up the winds, causes the light of day to rise and to set, and who treads on the tops of the heights of the mountains. This is the sovereign Lord God who is preparing... A swarm of, a a vast swarm of locusts that he's going to send over the land. Have you got the picture in your head? God is the one at work here. There There are natural consequences to sin. Sin causes sickness. It causes sometimes death. It causes strained or broken relationships. It causes chaos. There's a natural 
consequence to sin. This is not the natural course of cause and effect. This, in a terrifying way, is the sovereign Lord God Almighty involved himself in the judgment and the punishment of sin. Second thing that we're seeing in this is there's a little bit of ambiguity. It's bad when you can't say the word ambiguity correctly. Clearly, huh? It's ironic. Anyway, it doesn't make any difference. There's some ambiguity with what is going on with the king's share uh, being harvested. It may be the first cut of hay. We don't really know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, the first cut of hay that they, they, they take the first cut and it's designated for the king. It may be another crop. But at any rate, it is the first produce of the fields. You with me? The first produce of the fields is going to the king the king. The ambiguity is of no consequence. The issue at hand is that the first fruits, regardless of what they are, do not belong to the king. Is this where he's going to preach on taxes? No. No. Nope. Tithing, but not taxes. Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. I'm going to reference it. You don't have to turn there. Just listen carefully or write it down. Exodus 23, 19, God is giving instructions to the people of Israel right out of, out of uh, Egyptian slavery. He tells them, as you harvest your crops, bring the very best of the second harvest. Is that what it says? First. first. Yes. Not give your second, not give your third, not, not live on everything, and then if you have any left over, give. He says, bring the very best of the first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. The king of the land in this situation with Amos was receiving what God had designated for his temple. But the people are taking it and giving it to the king. So God is going to come in with the locusts, and he's going to cause destruction. Verse 2, in my vision, the locusts ate every green plant in sight. Then I said, O sovereign Lord, are you picturing this? Some of you are not picturing. Some of you are picturing something else. I really can't tell that. I'm just assuming. <laughs> Some of you are picturing lunch already. That's terrible. In my vision, the locust ate every green plant in sight. Then I said, all right, all right you got to be Amos here because he's talking, okay? So think like Amos. Feel what Amos is feeling. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, please forgive us or we will not survive for Israel is so small. So in one verse, we have the locusts, they didn't eat just the crops. They came and ate everything that was green. They took everything. No plants left. Amos recognizes how devastating this is going to be to their country. And so out of genuine concern and compassion, he pleads with the sovereign Lord to forgive Israel. Remember, Amos is actually from Judah. So he, he's come from Judah to talk to Israel about what God wants to say to them. And God says, I'm going to destroy them with locusts. And Amos says, Lord, no, 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 please, please forgive them. Forgive Israel of their sins. Besides, Israel is small and they're, they're helpless and they're weak and they're, they're not, they're not, they can't stand uh, under, under the power of your judgment. Now, this is happening 
if you will remember, when we set up Amos several weeks ago, this is happening at a time when Israel is economically doing great. Israel is strong historically. They're doing wonderful. They're powerful. They have a strong army. But Amos comes along and he says, Lord, forgive them. Don't put this punishment upon them because Israel is small and weak and, hel and helpless. It is because Amos is not comparing Israel now to historical prosperity. He's not saying, hey, Israel's weaker than they've ever been. That's not true. He's not comparing their, their history of prosperity. Amos is comparing Israel... The nation of Israel, who's doing spectacularly well right now, Amos is comparing Israel to the Lord God of heaven's armies. I didn't get that. The sovereign Lord says, I'm going to destroy Israel. And Amos says, but Lord God of heaven's armies, you are great and mighty and powerful, and Israel is small. Strongest they've ever been, but they're small and they're weak. Don't destroy your people. Are you getting the picture? Yeah. Amos chapter 7, verse 3, he says, So the Lord relented from his plan. He said, all right, Amos, I will not do it, he said. Out of God's grace, out of God's mercy, God chose not to inflict the punishment that Israel deserved. They deserved to be smudged off the map. They'd sinned against God. They deserved to be crushed. But in this moment, Amos cries out on behalf of Israel, and the Lord says, okay, I'll let it go. You've done this as a parent, you know. Whenever we get home, I'm going to whip your bottom. And then you get home, and you're like, yeah, I'm not angry anymore, so I'll let it go. We relent. Oh, goodness, y'all made me feel like I'm the only parent in the room that ever did that. You're like, no, I remember. Whenever we get home, <laughs> I'm kidding. Let's <laughs> do it in the car. <laughs> Pull over right now. Take your shoe off. Whack! <laughs> no relenting in my family. <laughs> we punish immediately. <laughs> I don't want you to forget why you're getting the whipping. All right. Number two, here we go. Number two, the Lord prepared fire. Oh, this is so good. <laughs> Number one, the Lord prepared locusts. He's going to destroy all the things that are green in the land of Israel. Number two, the Lord prepared fire. He's just up to no good. Amos chapter 7, verse 4. I said that kind of funny. Uh, Y'all didn't laugh. You took me serious. Okay, verse 4. Then, you're going to see the same format. Then the sovereign Lord, everyone say sovereign Lord, showed me another vision, vision number two. I saw him preparing to punish his people. This morning I was teaching my class. And we're talking about uh, Israel coming out of Egypt. And uh, God tells them, he says, you are going to be my people and I am going to be your God. It is God in, in one of his most romantic moments. Not in a weird way, guys. I know y'all are freaking out. Uh, but where God says, this is going to be a close relationship. You've been in slavery and bondage and you've been separated from the promised land that God had promised them to be in. And then he, whenever he brings them out, he says, you're going to be my people. It's kind of like whenever you say, you're my woman. I'm going to put a ring on your finger and you're mine forever till death do us part, dadgummit. <laughs> right? This is mine. You are mine. God says, you are my people. 
and he's happy with him back in Egypt, or whenever he calls him out of Egypt. Here, he's upset with him, and he says, I saw him preparing to punish who? His people. We still have God being very endeared to the people of Israel. We can't lose that in the text. I saw him preparing to punish his people with a great fire. Now we have this oxymoron because you have God's grace and mercy and his, him being a passionate, romantic, juxtaposed against his judgment of great fire. That's a great word, huh? Everyone say juxtaposed. Okay, now you're all speaking in tongues. Okay, here we go. Uh, So I saw him preparing to punish his people with a great fire. Here's the fire. The fire had burned up. This is what the vision that Amos saw. The fire had burned up the depths of the sea. Are you following? This is not a fire that's extinguished by water. This is a fire that is so powerful that it burns up water and was devouring the entire land. Then I said, did you picture all that? Okay, good. Verse 5, then I said, O sovereign Lord, Amos, please stop or we will not survive for Israel is too small. And then the Lord relented from this plan too. He says, I will not do that either, says the sovereign Lord. Here again, we have the exact same format that was in the previous vision. God shows, God shows Amos the punishment that Israel is deserving of. God is the one preparing this great fire. This is not a natural disaster. This isn't the normal fire season for Israel. I don't know if they have a fire season like we do or not, but it just seemed fitting. This is the Lord God himself preparing to destroy Israel and the bodies of water around and in Israel. He is sending fire. It's not good. Amos pleads again with the Lord. And out of God's grace and out of God's mercy, the Lord relents. The Lord was about to punish his people with fire that would burn up the oceans and devour the land. Amos wants the Lord to spare his people, and the Lord spared his people again. The judgment that was rightfully deserved, God relented from. He said, no, I'm going to let it go this time. God prepared locusts, God prepared fire, but God uh, has showed compassion. Now, on number three, I know we're moving fast, but I'm going to slow down here in a minute. Number three, the Lord used a plumb line. Man, these, these points just get you right in the heart, huh? So he prepared uh, locusts, he prepared fire, and now he's using a plumb line. Then he showed me another vision, vision number three. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. Now, we kind of have to pause here for a moment and talk about a plumb line for all of us that are not involved in masonry. So a plumb line is this tool that it's a long cord that has a weight on the end of it, and it typically is pointed. So you can point it at something very specifically, and it holds straight. It's used by builders to build walls, uh, to to make them straight up and down. Sometimes they use them for fences uh, because you don't want to build a fence that's straight this way, but the whole thing leans. You don't want to do that, trust me. Because once it's up, it looks horrible. (laughs) So this plumb line helps you keep everything straight. We want straight fences and straight walls, right? We want a crooked house. And so God's going to use this tool on Israel. 
Focus for a second. This time, God is not using a form of destruction like a swarm of locusts or fire. He's using a tool for construction. You with me? Two times he says, I'm not going to destroy you. I'm not going to wipe you off the map. The third time he says, I'm actually going to use a tool of perfecting you. That's good. Amos chapter 7, verse 8, here we go. He says, and the Lord said to me, he says, Amos, what do you see? And I answered, uh, plumb line. <laughs> That's how he said it. It is. Uh, plumb line. I have one in my toolbox, God. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I'm going to give them the plumb line. We're going to see what's going on here. I will no longer ignore their sins. God is using the plumb line to identify the imperfections, the sin in Israel. Are you with me? Instead of destroying the entire land, God is going to deal with sin in a more precise and constructive way. He's going to say, here is the plumb line of my word, of my instructions, and where you're all crooked about these instructions, I am going to bring that crookedness, that sin, I'm going to bring it back straight and in line with the plumb line of God's word. God is not going to destroy Israel. He is going to fix them. He's going to perfect them. He's going to get the sin out so that they're standing up straight. Okay? God is not going to allow Israel's sin to continue, but neither is he going to wipe Israel off the face of the planet with this blazing swarm of locusts. Kind of put those together. Anyway, moving along. The sins that God will no longer uh, uh, ignore, we start looking at in verse 9. He says, the pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined. We have this picture, I think sometimes, we have this picture of Israel, the promised land, where Israel comes in and they're God's people and they just live happy, happy lives. And every once in a while they go to Jerusalem to the temple and they worship. And other than that, there's nothing hinky going on. Hinky. Right? It's all good. But we talked about it in my class this morning that whenever they went in to take the, the promised land, did they kill off all of the Canaanites like they were commanded to? No. no. They left some Canaanite places of worship. So now here we are in Amos where we have some problems with these pagan shrines. All right, so the pagan shrines, I'm getting ahead of myself. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined. So he uses the plumb line and he says, whoa, we got these pagan shrines. It's a problem. And the temples of Israel will be destroyed. What? What's the temples of Israel? We got to figure that out. I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Okay, we're going we're gonna to explain some of this. Uh, these pagan shrines, they were probably burial grounds that were used for burying the dead. They'd pile them up, push a bunch of dirt up on them, and then they would go there and they would worship the dead. It was a practice that the Israelites learned from the Canaanites. If they'd killed all the Canaanites, we wouldn't have this problem. But they didn't. They didn't obey. They adopted their pagan shrines, their pagan worship, so now we have a problem. The temporary, the temples that he's talking about are temples that are set up kind of to worship God. They were set up before the temple was built in Jerusalem. Are you with me? So you have this timeline, Solomon's going to build the temple, but before that, 
we're going to have these temples are built. These, uh, these temples of convenience are built. So it may be that God is speaking in general of pagan worship or other places of worship that are not right. But the point is that to the issue of worship, that is either not directed to him or that is worship that is worship that is not consistent with the instructions that God has given Israel for worship. I don't know if I made that clear. God is speaking to the issue of their worship. It is either it is either that they are not worshiping him or they're worshiping him incorrectly. The point remains, God is going to destroy He's not going to relent at this time. God is going to destroy all the places of worship that do not meet his standard of perfection. He's got his plumb line. He wants the worship to be straight. He wants his lives to be straight. He wants wants their obedience to be perfect. He says, I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. The reason this is a a dynasty is because uh, way back you have Solomon. He's the third Saul, David, Solomon. Is that right? Solomon. King Solomon has two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam, the first, had set up these temples for the sake of convenience. It's too far to go to Jerusalem. So in Bethel and in Dan, let's set up these places of worship. I'll read it to you here in a second. Now we fast forward how many ever hundred years to where we're at in Amos and King Jeroboam II has appointed priests in these unholy places of worship. You with me? So we have these little uh, uh, convenient churches along the way to the real church. And God says, nope, that's not going to work. And 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 33 through 30, 34, tells us that this, this sin specifically would result in the complete destruction of Jeroboam's dynasty from the face of the earth. It's bookend where we're at now in the story of the Israelite people. It was Jeroboam from the, the son of the third king all the way through some whole 30-some kings to Jeroboam today. Jeroboam the first, bunch of kings, Jeroboam the second, God says, I'm going to do away with the dynasty of, Jer- of Jeroboam's, the kings. Watch what happens. You'll see that God has authority over kingdoms, both physically and spiritually. Big transition here. Okay. So he tells them, we're going to use this plumb line. We're going to make sure that everybody's straight. We're going to take down these pagan uh, temples. We're going to take down these other places of, of worship that are not uh, right, that are not biblical. Uh, number four, the king over kingdoms. The king over kingdoms. This is where we're headed. Then Amaziah, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Now, we've talked about Bethel since Hosea, right? This is the place that has a, has a temple, has a place of worship that is set up that has what? A golden Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, Jeroboam, king of Israel. So now you have Amaziah, he's the priest at Bethel. Amos, here's his message. Amos is hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. What he is saying is intolerable. 
a word we hear now. He is saying Jeroboam will soon be killed. Talking about King Jeroboam. And the people of Israel will be sent away into exile. Can you imagine this picture? This is, this is not a vision, by the way. This is narrative now. This is what happened. This, this prophet Amaziah writes to, uh, over to Amos, and he says, Hey, man. Or he's writing to the king, pardon me. He's writing to King Jeroboam of Israel. And he says, hey, this guy Amos, this prophet, he's saying bad things. We cannot tolerate his position. We cannot tolerate his prophecies. He's saying that you're going to die. He's saying that Israel's going to go into exile. I don't like it. You shouldn't like it either. Let's get rid of him. So in verse 12, then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. This guy Amaziah, boy, what, what's up with him? He's just taking over. He tells the king what we're going to do. Now he's telling Amaziah, he's telling Amos what he's going to do. Then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. He says, get out of here, you prophet. Go on back to the land of Judah and earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This, watch this, this is the king's sanctuary. This is the national place of worship. Stay with me. Amaziah was the, like the equivalent of the chief priest at this place of worship in Bethel. Bethel was the place that Jeroboam I had set up this golden calf to worship. Following? 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, he says, So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold calves. And he said to the people, it is, much, it is too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, the king, he's all proud of himself. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Man, we have a short memory, don't we? He placed these golden calves, these golden idols, in Bethel and in Dan, at either end of his kingdom. But this became a great sin, for the people worshipped the idols, traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam also erected buildings at the pagan shrines and ordained priests from the common people. They weren't from the tribe of Levi, which is what God had commanded them. Those who were not from the priestly tribe of Levi. Do you get the picture? Jeroboam has created a whole bunch of ruckus with these golden calves in Bethel and Dan. And now you have this prophet, this high priest at Bethel, who's giving orders to God's prophet, Amos. It is probable that Amaziah was the priest that King Jeroboam II had appointed to be the priest at the golden calf temple in violation of everything that God had instructed. Okay, you got the picture in your head? Amaziah, he comes along and he says to Amos, Amos, you need to go away. You're not even from Israel. You're not even an Israelite. You're from Judah. You're a Judean. So go away. Go back to your land. Go back to Judah. Because Amos is from Judah and he's prophesying about Israel, I think Amaziah doesn't feel like Amos has any right to be there. Even Amaziah's frame of reference was that Amos must be prophesying against Israel and against the king for money, because that happened. 
Remember Balaam's donkey? That old story is about Balaam getting paid off to, to prophesy a certain way. So the prophets were paid. So Amaziah comes along. He says, hey, Amos, if you want to make money prophesying, go somewhere else. This is where it gets a little crazy because you have Amaziah. Amaziah. Yeah, I keep thinking I'm saying it wrong. Amaziah, who is a pagan priest, he's telling the king we got to get rid of God's prophet, Amos, because he's saying that we got to stop sinning and he's a punk for it. And then Amaziah tells God's prophet, hey, go away. Don't prophesy to us. And so this is, this is where uh, Amaziah says to Amos, he says, don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary. This is the national place of worship. This temple is the sanctuary of the Jeroboam dynasty. This is what Jeroboam has done for us. This is the king's sanctuary. King Je- Jeroboam has made this temple, he has made this temple the kingdom. Are you with me? Amos, Amaziah says to Amos, he says, you and your old fuddy-duddy God have been replaced by King Jeroboam by this cool new golden calf in the temple. Amos, there is a whole new kingdom and you and your God have been replaced. So you need to go away. You are yesterday's religion. You are yesterday's kingdom. You're yesterday's God. We have a new God now. We have a new kingdom, a new way of thinking about things, new way of thinking about things. Does that resonate? It's almost like you're reading the newspaper today, huh? Now, You have Amaziah being all terrible to to God's prophet, Amos. Now, this is the place in the story where you know that God's prophet is going to go over to Amaziah's house. He's going to knock on the door. And whenever Amaziah opens the door, God's prophet, Amos, is going to breathe fire out of his mouth. And now Amaziah is going to be ashes and girly screams. But that's not what happens. I mean, that's what I would have done if I was God. It's a good thing I'm not God, huh? I'd still be preparing locusts and fire. (laughs) That's not what happens. Watch what Amos does. This is incredible. But Amos replied. So Amaziah just told Amos off. And this is what Amos does. He says, I am not a professional prophet, Amaziah. And I was never trained to be one. I'm, I'm I'm not a prophet. I'm just a shepherd. And I take care of sycamore fig trees. That's who I am. I'm not a prophet for hire. I'm not a professional. All I know is that the Lord called me away from my flock, and he told me, go and prophesy to my people, Israel. Of all the times for God's prophet to take a swing at a pagan, he didn't do it. He's very humble about it. Hey, Amaziah, I'm not a pro at this. Maybe you know more about what's going on with this prophecy thing than I do. I'm just telling you what God told me. I'm not here to to tell anybody what I think. I'm just here to be the mouthpiece of God. Amos is not defensive. He's not proud. Amos is humble as he can possibly be. The Lord told me to go and prophesy to his people. There's no malice in his voice. From what we can see, from what we saw earlier in the text, not only is Amos coming humble and with no malice, 
But Amos doesn't even want God to destroy Israel. He's coming with his heart filled with compassion, and he, he's merciful. Lord, please, don't, don't destroy Israel. They're your people, and they're small, and they're weak. And, and Amos is just coming in all the humility and the grace of God himself. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? How many of us would have elbow-smashed Amaziah? Yeah! But that's not Amos. That's not what we're doing. Amos is still speaking. Watch what's hap- what happens in 19. Man, you just see, you see the separation of the vessel and the message here. Watch what happens. Pay, pay, pay close, close attention. This is really, really cool. Amos is still speaking. I think he's speaking very softly. This is whenever you get down in your child's ear and you speak very, very uh, purposefully, very intently. He says, now listen, Amaziah. Listen to this message from the Lord. This is not my message. I'm just a shepherd. I trim trees for a living. That's all. This is a message from the Lord. Amaziah, you say, don't prophesy against Israel. You say, stop preaching against my people. That's what you're telling me, Amaziah. But this is what the Lord says. You ready? This is what the Lord says to you, Amaziah. Your wife will become a prostitute in this city. And your sons and your daughters, they will be killed. Your land that you're so proud of, that you've worked so hard to gather together, your land will be divided up. And you yourself will die in a foreign land. And the people of Israel will certainly become captives in exile from their homeland. You see Amos being merciful. Lord, forgive them. Set set Israel free. Don't punish them. You see Amaziah come into the story and he says, King Jeroboam, we got to put Amos down. We cannot tolerate his kind. We cannot tolerate his message. And he tells Amos, get out of town. And Amos humbly says, I'm just the mouthpiece of God. I am a humble man. I have nothing. But I'll tell you what the Lord says pretty tough, huh? Just, just when you think, just when you think that you have, you have a little kingdom of your own, that you have a little authority of your own, that you've kind of got an edge on this, the king is protecting you, you have your own little temple and you're the chief priest, you have your own little family and you can direct them however you want, just when you think that you can live however you please, just when you think that you are big enough to make your own rules, I don't need to do soap. I don't need to read my Bible on a regular basis. I'm a good person by what I think is good. And I can figure out what is good on my own. I don't need God giving me rules. I'm my own man. I'm my own king of my own kingdom. I'll do what I want when I want. I'll make the rules however I want. And those in my kingdom will abide by my rules. Just when you think that you're big enough to be king of your own kingdom, God The Lord God, this is what the sovereign Lord God says. I'll make your wife a whore. I'll kill your children. I'll take your land and divide it up. I'll take you to a distant land where you'll die as a despised foreigner. Don't think for a second that your kingdom is more powerful than God's kingdom. God has authority over all all kingdoms. Maybe you've established a little green pad around your house. 
Maybe you have a little kingdom, but I'm telling you, God has a way of removing kingdoms that stand between him and his people. Yeah, this is uh, not working out for Amaziah so great right now. Amaziah is never mentioned again. We don't know what happened to him. We can assume what happened to him. Yeah. But we do know, as far as the last phrase in that verse that says, and the people of Israel will certainly become captives in exile far from their homeland, we do know that Assyria later on comes in and they take Israel, destroying most of the people of Israel, and they take the last few people as captives into exile into Assyria. I'm telling you, with all the conviction in my heart, God has authority over kingdoms. Listen carefully. It doesn't matter if your kingdom is uh, your own pride or another specific sin. It doesn't matter if your kingdom is your own idea of how God should be worshipped or your own, uh, your job or your family. Uh, I saw a thing in passing the other day, don't make children your idol, uh, because we've, we've kind of, as a, as a society, it's kind of like, oh, I have to do everything for my kids. No, you don't. Uh, stop it. Um, because if you serve your kids, whenever they grow, they think they're God. You got a problem, son. <clears throat> If your kingdom is your family, if it's your house, if it's your possessions, if it's the way you think of your worship or your religion or your ability to, find, to define what is good and evil, it doesn't matter what your kingdom is. God has authority over kingdoms. So whatever it is you're worshiping and exalting, your kingdom may be physical, it may be spiritual. Spiritual? Spiritual? Spiritual. Just know, know that God... The sovereign Lord God Almighty, he removes the kingdoms that stand between him and his people. He removed the kingdoms that stood between him and Israel. He'll remove the kingdoms that stand between you and him. So, sir, God will destroy your kingdom in order to establish his own kingdom. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Yeah, if you're looking for fairness, Christianity is the wrong religion. Amen. There's nothing fair about Christianity. Fair is that we're obliviated off the face of the planet because of our sin. God is merciful and kind. God will destroy your kingdom in order to establish his own kingdom. He will tear up your world to make you a, citizens, a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me? Well, I thought he was just going to make my world good. No, he's going to bring you into his kingdom. That's what he wants. And if you establish all these other forms of religion and all these other forms of idolatry, he'll destroy. He'll destroy all those kingdoms to bring you to himself. So, so, in order to save yourself and those that are close to you a lot of pain, Matthew tells us in chapter 6, verse 33, one of my favorite verses, he says, Jesus says, he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Well, but Brent, I have to do these things and I have a to-do list that's a mile long and, and I have to take care of my family and I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to make sure that I have a house that's big enough and I have to make sure that... No. Seek the kingdom of God first above all these other things and then all those other things have a way of aligning in life. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. Not just come to church first thing on Sunday morning. No. 
No, we're back to that whole crops thing. God says, I want the first fruits. Well, God, how about I give you the second or the third fruits? No, I want the first fruits. We, we want to compromise with God, give him the second fruits, and then expect God to bless us. <laughs> you don't make the rules, man. I don't know what the rules are in your kingdom, but that's not God's rules. So if you live by his rules of his kingdom, you are blessed enormously. More than you could ever ask or imagine, you are blessed. Don't compromise God's rules in his kingdom. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously. And he, who is he? Sovereign Lord God Almighty of heaven's armies will give you everything you need. Everything. That's it. The kingdom of God is superior to any kingdom that you can imagine. The kingdom of God will get you the best you can get in this life and all eternity. The kingdom of God is where we focus all of our attention, all of our trust, because that's where all the answers are at. That's where blessing is at. That's where God is at. That's where his love is at. That's where his holiness is at, his mercy and his kindness. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that you are a ferocious God who loves your people, uh, who loves your people with just this great, enormous, and fantastic love. Father, this morning I pray that, that you will apply the plumb line of your word, that your Holy Spirit will speak into our hearts, that by your plumb line you will point out the places in our lives that we have compromised, that we have given in to idols, things that we love, things that we worship, things that we have set uh, between you and our, our worship of you. Lord, I pray that you would take away those sins in our lives, take away those idols. Help us to be excellent at focusing our eyes upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and not being distracted with all the other things that go on around us. But Lord, that we, we look to you in faith for all of our, the forgiveness of our sins, for your grace, for your mercy, that you would work in us to be glorified and to be praised. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.